Thank you, John. As executive pastor, I get to make a lot of just kind of unilateral decisions, so uh, we'll be having Kona ice every week uh, from this moment going forward. No. Uh, just kidding. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, uh, I'm Mike. I'm one of the pastors here, executive pastors. Uh, we are excited that you're here. Like John said, for those of watching online, we are grateful you're with us this morning. Um, to start off, uh, a few years ago, uh, I read a book that many of you may know and may be familiar with. It's called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I don't know if you guys have read that. Uh, if you haven't, it's really a book on advice, as the title suggests, on how to take all the aspects of, of life and work and anything that you're trying to accomplish and the time and effort you're spending on those things and how to make the most out of it. And, and to be honest, uh, I only remember like two or three of the habits, so I guess I'm less highly effective and I'm more moderately effective as a person. Um, but of those two or three that uh, I do remember, one of them is the habit begin with the end in mind. And it's the idea that uh, when, our, when we understand what our ultimate goal is in doing something, uh, it helps us plan and set better expectations and uh, hopefully make us more effective in what we're trying to accomplish. So with that, we are kicking off our sermon series called Reorder, the Sermon on the Mount. And I couldn't be more excited about that. Uh, and, and we're beginning today. And we will be going on a journey together through this great sermon by Jesus through the rest of this year and actually into 2023. So today, at the beginning, I think it would be wise for us to begin with the end in mind. When we reach the end of our series together, months from now, what things do we desire that God will do in us? What promises do we expect God to fulfill in us? And ultimately, how will we individually and collectively live differently then than we do this morning? Because spoiler alert, if you haven't read it, Jesus is going to speak some hard things to us in this sermon. He doesn't mince words. I like to say Jesus is an equal opportunity offender when it comes to exposing the sin and idolatry in our lives. So by preaching this message, Jesus would show his listeners then and to us today that that sinfulness in us has caused us to see his world upside down. Instead of looking to God and his holy kingdom and those commands and those values, we look to the sinful kingdoms of this world and their upside down values, kingdoms not built upon the God-exalting worship of the true king, but kingdoms built upon the worship of ourselves and the desires of our selfish hearts. So we need a reordering of our lives. And it's these upside down kingdoms of sin that Jesus came to free us from. And that's the message of the Sermon on the Mount. So if you've been with us for a while, you remember uh, our Exodus series called us to look forward. Not looking back to what it was before, but ahead to what God is calling us to be. And we just finished our faithful series that reminded us that our hope in going forward is not ourselves, but looking to our faithful promise-keeping God. And today, we continue in the work that God is doing in us, moving us forward in God's faithfulness, asking him to reorder every aspect of our lives around his true kingship and his kingdom. So in keeping with the idea to begin with the end in mind, to start this series off, we're actually going to look at the end of the sermon. Matthew chapter 7 in verse 24, like John read. But before we even start there, let's give a little bit more context 
uh, for what uh, this teaching that's been called the Sermon on the Mount. So even as you turn to uh, chapter 7 of Matthew, here's some context. So the Gospel of Matthew is one of what's been called the synoptic Gospels. Synoptic is a Greek word meaning able to be seen together. And it's used to describe three out of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Because despite their uniquenesses and tones and focus, these three Gospels share very similar narratives and stories about the life of Christ. The Gospel of John, however, includes things unique to itself, so it's, it's not included in this description of synoptic. But while Matthew, Mark, and Luke share similar stories, each of the Gospel accounts are distinct. And when seen together, they paint a wonderful portrait of Jesus and his fulfillment of our redemption. So Matthew in particular has a wonderful theme throughout his gospel of showing Jesus as the long-anticipated fulfillment of the promised Messiah, who would come to bring about the kingdom of God in the salvation of his people. Matthew shows us that Jesus is many things, but one of the things he is, is a king with a kingdom. But what is this kingdom? Where does it come from and what does it look like? And that's what the Sermon on the Mount kind of helps us to see. But when we try to define the kingdom of God, it's too simple just to say the kingdom of God is just wherever God rules as king, because God rules everywhere, always as king. There is no place where God is not ruling as all-powerful king over everything. We learned about his sovereignty a few weeks ago, if you're with us. So it must mean something more than just wherever God reigns as king. And we see that even in Matthew's gospel towards the beginning in chapter 3, verse 2, when John the Baptist preaches the message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John is saying something new is here, something different than what we've known. And this new and different kingdom is going to call us to live differently. The Apostle John tells us in his gospel that when Jesus was arrested, if you remember, and with Pilate before his crucifixion, Jesus says to him, my kingdom is not of this world. This different kingdom of John the Baptist that he preached about, Jesus claims, is his kingdom. He is the king, and it's not of this world. It doesn't come from here, and you can't find it by looking around here. So there's a kingdom of God not from this world, but from heaven. It belongs to and is ruled by Jesus, and it is something we desperately need. So much so that Jesus tells us in this very Sermon on the Mount to pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Because the truth is, God's kingdom is both a present and also a promised kingdom. That one day will come in its fullness. When we just sang about it, when, when King Jesus returns and fully and finally removes sin, its curse upon the world, and all our false and upside down kingdoms with it. But it is also here now and can and should be experienced today. This heavenly kingdom is both, hear this, one day and two day. 
It's both already and not yet. Because we see this kingdom of God that John and Matthew and Jesus spoke about everywhere God's will is submitted to by his people. We witness God's kingdom at hand in the lives of those living out the will of God. One day in its fullness, but also today in the lives of the obedient, redeemed children of God. I like how Jeremy Treat puts it. He says, the kingdom of God in eight words, God's reign through God's people over God's place. And this is the world-altering message of the kingdom, and it's the world-altering message of the Sermon on the Mount, the proclamation of a king and a kingdom. Jesus showing us what it looks like when the kingdom of heaven comes crashing down into the kingdoms of this world and reorders the upside down to make it right side up again. So we might ask ourselves, okay, but what does the Sermon of the Mount, on the Mount really have to do with us today? Well, I like how David Martin Lloyd-Jones says it, and it's a super long quote, so you can just listen if you want. He says this, listen, the Sermon on the Mount is nothing but a great and grand and perfect elaboration of what our Lord called his new commandment. His new commandment was that we love one another even as he loved us. The Sermon on the Mount is nothing but a grand elaboration of that. If we are Christ's, and our Lord has meant that word for us, that we should love one another even as he loved us, here we are shown how to do it. There is nothing, therefore, so dangerous as to say that the Sermon on the Mount has nothing to do with modern Christians. Indeed, I will put it like this. It is something which is meant for all Christian people. It is a perfect picture of the life of the kingdom of God. So what is the end in mind for us in studying the Sermon on the Mount? That in seeing the truth about the holy kingdom of heaven compared to the sinful kingdoms of our own heart, that we would be so utterly transformed, so reordered, that in our showing to the world a glimpse of this true and holy kingdom of God, he would use our lives to draw people to him. Or, in other words, as Jesus says in this sermon, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the kingdom we were meant for. This is the only true kingdom there is. And everything, everything about us should be built upon it. That is why Jesus, I believe, concludes the Sermon on the Mount how he does by charging and warning people about the absolute need to believe and live in and for the kingdom of God. It's a story of two houses built upon two foundations. So read with me again in chapter 7, starting verse 24, and I'll have it on the screen as well. Jesus says this at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. 
And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. So let's walk through this together. Jesus says in verse 24, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So we, we already learn a few things here. You know, notice how Jesus starts out. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them. So these words of mine refer to the message of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus looks at the crowd and says, there's a promise laden within this message. And it's a promise for the wise, and it's a promise to withstand the storm, but it's not for those who simply hear the message, but for those who do the message. It's not enough just to listen to the truth, but to live the truth. The purpose of his sermon and the purpose of our series is not simply gaining biblical knowledge. It's not intellectual assent. It's not learning the Greek words or how to parse this passage better. Jesus is saying the point of this is that we would do it. Live it. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way. Jesus did not preach the Sermon on the Mount in order to be admired for his homiletical or his preaching skills. He preached it to produce obedience. Kind of reminds me of the exhortation that James gives to the church. And James wrote, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself self and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So in other words, Jesus comes to the end of his message and, and uses this analogy to say, a wise life is not someone who just hears this message, takes notes, nods along, shows up faithfully to each message week after week, learns a lot of head knowledge, but then goes back to a life unchanged. No wisdom is shown in the life it produces, starting with the foundation that our lives are built upon. So Jesus uses the imagery here of that wise living by saying each of one of us is building our lives like a house. And under each house is a foundation. And the foundation is what makes all the difference. Again, it says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. So what is this rock? What is this unshakable foundation that will help the house of our lives withstand the storm? It's not what, 
but rather who? It's King Jesus. He is the rock, the cornerstone, the foundation. We build all that we are upon. A house built on the storm-surviving foundation of the rock is a life built upon the reality of King Jesus. Trusting him, submitting to him, surrendering to him in worship. It's the reordering of our lives, our house, from the foundation of ourselves, our own goodness, our own achievements, our own self-made identities, the false kings and kingdoms of this upside-down world, and reordering our hearts with King Jesus on the throne calling the shots. That is a sure and steady rock and foundation that you only find in King Jesus. So what about these storms that it talks about? The rain, flood, and wind, what are those? So certainly life is tough and full of storms, right? Health issues, financial issues, broken relationships, disappointments, insecurities, abuse, for sure. And will Jesus, as our rock, be with us and help us stand in those storms? Absolutely. But is this the storm that Jesus is talking about here? I don't think so. Because if you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, you can look just up above this in chapter 7. Jesus kind of warns about another type of storm. It's the storm of the judgment of God. So Jesus here is addressing the ultimate storm of our lives, the coming future reality of standing before judgment, before a holy God, because medicines and vacations and bonus checks and other things can be superficial buoys that kind of hold us up in the momentary storms of this life, but there is only one foundation that we can stand upon. When the storm of God's holy judgment for our sin batters against us, that our lives are built on, rooted in, trusting in the rock of Jesus alone. So going back to beginning with the end in mind, how often do you think about the end of your life? That the entirety of your life will be put before God's holy judgment. Every act, every decision, every heart motivation before his perfect holiness to render judgment on us for how we lived. It's a storm of holy judgment that none can survive. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one who seeks God, no, not one. None are righteous. So what is our only hope when we face the storm of God's judgment against us and our sin? That someone has taken the storm for us. Jesus, our King, already took the battering and beating and judgment and condemnation of the storm of our sin on the cross. Jesus withstood God's good and holy judgment of our sin to the fullest and infinite degree on the cross. Jesus took our storm on himself in our place on the cross and traded with us, giving us his perfect righteousness and taking on himself our utter sinfulness. So that in that last day we will all face at the end, the house of our lives will stand. The storm of God's judgment will not destroy us. Not because of us, but because of Jesus. Because we turned. 
from trusting in ourselves to be enough. Turn from trusting in the false kings and kingdoms of this world to be our hope and trust and turn to Jesus. He alone is king. He alone is savior. The gospel of our salvation in his perfect life, his death on the cross and his resurrection as our victorious sin conquering king. That is the only foundation we have that will last the storm because he already faced it and overcame it for us our rock, and our King, Jesus. And friends, that is the beginning of a reordered life. That is the beginning of the kingdom of God in us. And it's what Jesus calls wisdom. Reordering the trusts of our lives. Again, away from trusting in anything in ourselves or anything in this world and putting King Jesus alone at the throne of our hearts. Because before we can live as citizens of God's kingdom, we must be first be brought into his kingdom by faith. So this reordering, this new life, this salvation, it only happens by faith. Giving yourself in faith alone to the only King Jesus. So right now, right where you are, you can believe. You can confess your sins to God. Confess your need for mercy and forgiveness. Confess that you've been living for other kings and other kingdoms. Confess the truth that your one true king, Jesus, did the work to free you from the curse and condemnation of the kingdom of sin you and I lived in. That he took the storm of your cross for you, disarming and defeating the power of sin and darkness. And that he rose again to a new life. And that by believing, you are made new, forever forgiven, forever made holy, and forever now a citizen in the kingdom of God he has made for you. And if you've trusted in King Jesus alone as your salvation, these words by Paul in Colossians are true for you this very moment. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Friends, what is your hope for when the storm of God's judgment comes? What is the rock you and I are building our lives on? Turn to Jesus. Because it's only after we enter into the kingdom of God by faith, do we then learn to live as citizens of the kingdom that we now belong to? Daniel Aiken puts it this way. The Sermon on the Mount does not teach men and women how to live to get into the kingdom, but how men and women in the kingdom should live. In other words, hear this. The Sermon on the Mount doesn't teach us how to be saved but how the saved are to be. So as wise home builders, with Christ as the rock-solid foundation we're building our lives on. So even now, at the beginning of this sermon series, you might already start feeling that God's going to be calling you and me. And I think he's going to be calling us in two ways. The first is by revealing to us how upside-down wicked and sinful the kingdoms of this world 
that we're building our lives are. He is going to use this series to expose and convict us of the sin in our lives. So the first calling is to believe the gospel of grace. That our ability to earn our way or perform our way into the kingdom is impossible. But only by believing in the gospel of grace of what Jesus has done for us will we enter in. But if the first gospel or first call is to believe in the gospel of grace, then the second call Jesus puts before us is to live the gospel of grace. That as those made new by Jesus, citizens of his kingdom, we would seek God and having every square inch of our lives transformed by King Jesus. That we would live in the humble expectation that God, in his loving goodness, wants the best for us, and the best for us is our holiness in every area. So Jesus teaches us to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed, holy, reverent be your name, your kingdom come in me, your will be done in us, your kingdom people. So as we kind of conclude this initial entry into this Sermon on the Mount series, I want to borrow again from David Martin Lloyd-Jones in answering the question, why? So why do we study the Sermon on the Mount? And I think there's at least five quick reasons why we're going to walk through this study together. The first one is, it is the Word of God. One of our core values here at Chantilly Bible Church is that we are rooted in the Word, meaning that the Word of God is our first and final authority over us. His Word, His Scriptures are God's holy and precious gift to us, and they lead us in knowing Him, in knowing ourselves, and in knowing how we ought to live in this world that He's made. So that's the number one reason we are studying it is because it is the Word of God. Two, it shows me my need for a new birth, like we just mentioned. So we talked about what it means to be born again from above a few weeks ago. But the Sermon on the Mount, again, is going to expose our sinfulness and how we fall short of God's holiness and our need to be born again into his kingdom by faith in Jesus. It's that call to believe the gospel of grace. Three, the Sermon on the Mount shows me the life Jesus died for, his death so that I could live. In other words, Jesus died on the cross not only to pay the price for my sin, but to remove from you and me the power of sin over us. We are no longer under the kingdom of darkness, but now are citizens of the kingdom of light. And those of us who have trusted in Jesus by faith, we now have the Holy Spirit and a power in us to live the kingdom life that we see in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus died on the cross so you and I could live the life of the kingdom that Jesus speaks of. It calls me and calls you not just to believe, but to live the gospel of grace. Four. 
The Sermon on the Mount promises blessing right from the very beginning. And not the worldly blessings of the health and wealth, prosperity gospel, but the blessing, the happiness, the delight of God in and through us as his kingdom moves in and through us. As we build our lives, not just on hearing, but doing his word, he promises to bless us in ways that this world can't. So we study and we live the Sermon on the Mount, trusting in faith that God blesses those who seek him. And lastly, Lloyd-Jones argues, and I think he's right, that living the kingdom of kingdom life of the Sermon on the Mount is the best witness to the world of the reality of the gospel. So some of us have probably heard the statistics about church attendance across the nation is down, especially in young people. Some of us in here are experiencing the heartache. I am firsthand of people we know and love, friends, family, even children who have walked away from the church and from the faith. And let's be honest, the church at large has given some compelling reasons for people to distrust and disconnect from the church. Too often, when the world looks at the church, they see the same kings and kingdoms that they're following out there. Shown in the same lusts for power, sexual immorality, greed, hatefulness, anger, fear, abuse, and more. Instead of the holiness of God marked by a kingdom people of grace and compassion and love and humility and justice and generosity. And it's not everywhere. It's not every church. God is still alive and doing holy, beautiful kingdom things through his people. And there is a lot of good out there to rejoice about. But we also have to acknowledge where the church has let go of King Jesus and taken hold of the values, powers, and false hopes of the kingdoms of this world. Russell Moore, in a recent article, talking about, uh, you may have heard the term deconstruction and young people disconnecting from the faith and from the church. And I think he put it well when he said this. We now see young evangelicals walking away from evangelicalism, not because they do not believe what the church teaches, but because they believe the church itself does not believe what the church teaches. Or as James would put it, beloved church, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. So we're studying the Sermon on the Mount to live the Sermon on the Mount. And part of that is desiring to proclaim the truth and hope of our rock, Jesus, to a world who is watching not simply what we say, but how we live. So friends, what that means right here at the beginning is that you and I would have the courage, the humility, and the faith right now to go to God and pray and ask him to do what he would with our lives. 
that he might reorder everything about us to reflect the reality of his kingship and his kingdom among us. And in doing so, that he might bind us together as a kingdom family. To let our light so shine in how we live that the world would see our good works and praise God because of what they see in us. Guys, we're going to be honest. It's going to get hard over the next few weeks and months. Because God loves you, because God loves me, he doesn't want to leave us as we are. But he's going to come in and like holy antiseptic pour his grace onto wounds in our lives that are going to sting before they heal. But in doing so, he's going to reorder our hearts, reorder our lives around the reality of who he is, and I truly believe use us to proclaim his glory to the world around us. That's why we exist. That's what we're here for. God's kingdom come, his will be done in us as a kingdom people. Are you ready? Ready or not? (laughs) As we end this message, let's actually go back to the actual very end of this section. The very last couple of uh, verses in chapter 7, where Jesus has just given this life-altering, challenging, convicting, uplifting sermon. And let's see what the response of the people was. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So friends, beginning with the end in mind, looking ahead to whenever this series is over, Let's anticipate, just like this crowd, that as we hear his words together on this journey, that Jesus will astonish us. That he will call us to trust his authority as our king. And that he will reorder our lives so that we live the kingdom lives of the gospel of grace we were made for, all for his glory. Let's do it together. Let's lay it all down. Let's pray. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done in and through us. Lord, I pray for my friends in this room or those watching online, if they've never taken that first step of surrendering to King Jesus, to putting their sin on him on the cross and receiving his free gift of grace and forgiveness and mercy, that they would make that step right now. And I pray for the rest of my friends here and online and with me, Lord, those that know you, Lord, that we would lay our hearts open and bare to the reality of our one true and holy King Jesus, the one kingdom that it's worth living for, the one kingdom that will stand, and the one rock that we have in the hope of that storm, and we would lay everything about us down to him. Use us, change us, mold us, shape us to look less and less like this world and more and more like the kingdom we've been bought for.
and spirit. Grant us a heart not just of obedience, but of awestruck worship at the greatness of our God who would save us and call us into his eternal kingdom. And it's in the name of that Savior that we pray these things. Amen.